Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Ladies and gentlemen, sisters and brothers and others, uh, friends and followers of Dark Knight of the Podcast, when I, Roger, the Scream Queer, formerly known as, now it's Fun Hog Connors, um, when I said that I was going to be taking a, a brief sabbatical, a leave of absence, if you will, from the podcast, um, I really, I thought it was going to be something maybe as short as seven days. However, it ended up being about three months, and so Troy has been filling the void of my absence with some wonderful talents, but I just want to let you all know that as of today, moving forward, Mama's home, and I'm coming back in fucking style. Let them know, Troy! <laughs> you are fucking back in style. Uh, I mean, wow. I, it, it's, it's, it's been forever. Like I, I don't know how I'm going to uh, be able to handle this episode having you back. I mean, it's a good thing you were just here in Vegas where you rightfully earned your nickname, Fun Hog Roger Connors or Fun Hog Connors. But yeah, we we are back and we uh, we're, we're diving we're diving well deep into this one. <laughs> we are falling backwards down a well into this next review. <laughs> Ringing in the new year right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a play on words that I did not fucking intend at all. I really just wanted to cover this film, uh, which is going to be 2002's The Ring, um, American remake of the classic Ringu, um, which has really gone on to... I mean, honestly, set the groundwork for an American retelling of, of a piece of Asian horror. I think this film is going to be a, a true joy to talk about because I really don't think we've discussed any... Have we discussed any Asian cinema at all here? Like, any classic Asian cinema? I don't think we've covered even a traditional Asian title to begin with, have we? No, no. And actually, there are a few on my list that I would love to chat with you about at some point. Audition being one of them. Evil Dead Trap from the late 80s. Yeah, you were right. This ushered in um, the uh, the American kind of remake of Japanese films or, or Asian films craze because this is right around the time. Right after The Ring came out and was super successful, you got The Grudge. You got Dark Water. Yes. You got that one with, what the fuck was it? Jessica Alba. What one was that? What was, what was that one? About Polaroid. Or, oh, my God. The What about, oh, her, the what about her eyes? Yeah. There's Wait, a, there's, there's, the, there's, the eye. There's the eye one. There's a camera one. There's a bunch of them. But yeah, but yeah. I mean, I think that the ring really stands up as, as in my opinion, being the the paramount example of a American remake of a foreign film, getting it right. And dare I say, Roger, and some people might come at me but I think actually this film is better than the original. Oh, I I agree wholeheartedly, and and people will be mad. And it's not that I don't love and respect the original. It's it's not honestly because I can't understand it either. I don't obviously speak the language. That's fine. But it's really just in the sense of developing a style uh, that was completely its own. While it's homaging the original film, 
it is its own standalone piece of cinema. Yeah, and you know, Ringo, the original one, was kind of one of those forbidden films that I that I heard about in the early, 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 early stages of the internet. Um, I think a lot of maybe uh, horror fans my age, your age, can can really relate to the eBay days. Remember the eBay days, the early eBay days of of and the early internet days of, of hearing about these specific films that uh, were very hard to get your hands yeah. on, and the only way you could get them was through eBay. And you know, I heard I had heard about Ringu and um, you know how terrifying it was supposed to be, and at that moment there was no streaming services there was nothing the only way you were going to get a hold of it is if you purchased a copy and i went ahead and did it on ebay and there i can't even remember i think i paid like 50 bucks for a copy of the vhs on on ebay to get a hold of the film and i watched it and yeah it's it's terrifying particularly for the time period but I, but i do want to say like i hadn't watched it since um a recent viewing because right after viewing the ring the version we are discussing today i went on shutter because all of the japanese ring films are on shutter and i watched it um and i gotta say i i'll stand by the fact that i think that this american remake is much better in virtually every respect and again come at me you can but it's just my personal opinion and i'll, I'll get into why i think that way as we go along yeah yeah i, th- I mean i think there's so many things about the the ring as its own standalone piece of cinema that um, are truly exceptional in general. You know, remake aside, just as a piece of cinema, this is uh, truly a, um, a a unique and at the time very, I would say, groundbreaking film because I really think it not only ushered in the whole era of of Asian remakes, but also a sense of style. Uh, that we had not seen, like, injected into the horror genre in general. Like, I think leading up to this point, we were getting a lot of slashers. We were getting a lot of films that I think were starting to feel maybe a little honed in. And then this film came out, and, like, it just felt like nothing else at the time at all whatsoever. It felt so unique, such a breath of fresh air as a paranormal you know, horror film that we weren't getting a ton of at that time. Uh, And, like, lest we forget the amazing marketing that they had to promote this movie. You're talking about, you know, the era of the internet coming about. Um, and really like, this is the first film I remember seeing a unique marketing campaign ad that you were able to start maybe accessing like online and start seeing these great ads on MTV, like all over the TV channels where you'd have the snippets of visuals of the, of the ring trailer or of the video that you actually see, you'll get these little snippets and then it would just say the ring coming you know on this date and it would have that image of the actual ring flash on the screen and that's all they were giving you and it was so enticing because you had no fucking idea what it was about at all you just know you're seeing this woman brushing her hair in a mirror and looking at the mirror looking at the camera and all of a sudden you see this fucking ring come up you see dead horses <laughs> in the aligning the sea and you don't know what it's about at all and you just get these terrifying visuals and then it's like the ring didn't even say what it was about and it didn't have to because visually this film was so enticing right off the bat. You knew it was going to deliver something and boy, did it deliver. Yeah, it definitely took a page from its marketing strategy from, I would say the Blair Witch Project um, with kind of their internet marketing campaign that went super viral. I feel like you, this was very similar to that. They did a lot of 
internet geared marketing and and I yeah I do remember the the little snippets playing on like MTV and the whole mysterious anticipation of what the actual videotape was going to look like you know what I mean what were you going to see when the film came yeah. out what was it gonna, what was going to be on it how how terrifying was it going to be but beyond that it's a stunning film and I I think that um, cinematography wise this took horror films to another level there are some uh, beautifully crafted shots aerial shots i mean all kinds of stuff that you just didn't see in in, in these types of films and kind of the the dreary blue hue that envelops the entire film it's it gives it an atmosphere gives it a distinct style uh that that definitely influenced films that came after that came after it um and i'm like i said i'm super excited to, to discuss this film with you and all of the various layers that the film i think gives the viewers but yeah i mean before we get into it roger you haven't been you haven't been around for a while so i feel like we both need to just remind our lovely listeners who are probably thrilled to have you back, even though you're right, I did have some great guest hosts uh, of, of a couple things they can do to help us ring in the new year uh, and give us some support to start us strong. One of them is we are still, still Roger looking for that elusive 50th five-star rating on Apple podcasts. If they're not going to give it now that I'm fucking back, I mean, I don't think they're going to give it ever prove us wrong listeners. If I can prove me wrong, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it. Absolutely. We need, I, I know, you know, it, it sounds like a kind of a weird thing to harp on, but it does help. Uh, shows that get more star ratings, obviously get higher, you know, ranked in, in searches if people are searching for like horror movie podcasts or whatever. So go ahead. It, it takes you like three seconds. Literally, if you have Apple, you're listening to Apple podcast, find Dark Knight of the podcast, sc- scroll down, click the little five stars. You can write a review if you want, but I'm just, want, I just want that 50th five-star rating and another thing we're doing that we're going to start back up and we i mean we have so much content on it already but it's our patreon patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast we will be getting back to that in full swing but right now there are literally 65 different bonus episodes including some video episodes we do a little we do some little video recordings to post up there but again just help us ring in 2024 start us strong so that we continue the the excitement and the the motivation that we have for making 2024 the year of Dark Knight of the podcast. Oh, the year of it indeed. And I really think that it is uh, an exciting time for us. And and now that, you know, I've been working on my movie, Meat is finished. I mean, it's been shot. We're editing it. But now at least, I, you know, I'm back to stay. And I'm really ready to jump in the pool with y'all. Jump in the well, if you will. Um, and, and really just dive in, Troy, and talk about 2002's the Ring, directed by none other than Gore Verbinski, with, I dare say, really pays off. <laughs> it really pays off. And with a, a surprisingly great screenplay, I say surprisingly because it is written by none other than Aaron Kruger, who gave us Scream 3, dare I say. So the kind of the, 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 the intelligence boost from the screen three screenplay to this film is, is incredible. And I can see why he continues to kind of be a prolific screenwriter in Hollywood because of films like this. He took, you know, he took a, a very, he took a concept, you know, the, the concept of the Japanese film, which is also based on a novel and really expanded it. And I, I think that's why this film works for me a little bit more than the Japanese original one is because the, the, the story is 
expanded a little bit more so it makes a little bit more sense but we will we will get there because we're gonna have to dive right into this opening scene oh my god this opening scene a film filled with stars by the way <laughs> yeah a young amber tamblin we, who also came back for the grudge too so she likes sticking with a, a, a subgenre. she likes asian horror remakes uh, and this is her finest one i'm gonna say it right now Oh yeah, Katie. You get Katie and Becca, two gals that are just uh, inside the house watching TV. I mean, I think one of the clever things that this film kind of sets up right away, and it's kind of a, it is interesting that Aaron Kruger did write the script because I do think that this opening scene is a little bit of a misdirect wink at the Scream films because you think it's going to start one way. I mean, it has a very cliched at this point what we are used to seeing from like a Scream film, Girls Home Alone. Uh oh, what's going to happen? Is some crazy slash you're going to start calling them? What's going to, you know, how is this going to play out? But instead, the story unfolds in a supernatural aspect where through some, through some dialogue, we find out that one of the girls had heard, uh, Becca had heard about this videotape that apparently if you watch it uh, in seven days, you will die. Now, in the meantime, Becca is just whining and bitching about the fact that television is ruining people's, <laughs> ruining people, ruining young people, mainly because of the electro waves and and whatnot that televisions produce. So it's it's literally rotting our brains. And I think it's just kind of a funny parallel because when this videotape is mentioned, her whole demeanor changes, and. Becca is like, what, what's the matter with you? And she's like, where did you hear about that tape? And she's like, well, everyone's talking about it. Why? Because I, I watched it last week. What really works right off the bat here is how nonchalant they are with the initial approach. Like, yes, these girls are just hanging out. They're having a very casual conversation. Uh, the tape is approached in only, almost like an urban legend kind of manner, if you will. It's, it's a rumor that's going around. Um, and you really can't tell whether or not Katie Amber Tamblin, Katie, has seen the tape or not. Like, you don't know if she's leaning into it for the sake of the joke, uh, trying to scare her friend Becca, or what. But as it, you know, as the moment unfolds, you do actually realize that, yes, she has, in fact, seen the tape. Uh, and it's really proven once she starts to have her first experience with what is the supernatural element. But they do a really nice job of building up to it you know it's a pretty brief scene it goes by quickly but like i dare say this opening has earned its title as one of the um most celebrated and recognizable openings to a horror film honestly probably of all time i would say not necessarily the opening scene itself but i would say a reveal from the opening scene is definitely one of the most recognizable images from a horror film of all time. Does that make sense? Not necessarily anything in the opening scene itself, because you're right. The opening scene goes by pretty brief. Uh, there are some joke, you know, actually uh, after she says she watched the videotape, Katie pretends like she's choking. And that's when Becca's like, Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. And Katie lightens up and says, Oh, I was just teasing you. And that's when the phone rings. And right when the phone rings, Katie's whole demeanor changes and Becca looks at her and she's like, there really is a tape, isn't there? And that's kind of how, you know, tape is real. They go downstairs, Becca gets on the phone and slowly hands it to Katie. I do like this moment as well, because you think it's like something ominous, but when Katie gets the phone, it's just her mom. And she kind of has a brief conversation with her mom. 
then there's just she hangs up with her mom. She goes over the refrigerator, gets scared by the refrigerator door, and the TV comes on. There's this whole moment, like poltergeisty moment, where this TV comes on. She shuts it off, comes back on again as she's walking away. She goes up and unplugs it, and the whole scene basically culminates in her kind of going upstairs to her room and, and seeing water coming out from under her be- uh, bedroom door. She opens the door. We see that the TV in her bedroom is now displaying a well. And then it just kind of fash pushes in on her face. And that's it. That's the opening scene. It's probably a good one. How, how long do you say I want to say this is four minutes? It's pretty quick. And I do know what you're getting at with the opening scene, like being celebrated. My point is, I think it's a specific shot that flashes back to the opening scene. That is, I think, what's memorable. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the setup, what it's leading to is is very much something that we've seen parodied in Scary Movie, was it, 3? Like, you know, this is the setup with the two girls in the bedroom leading to this moment that is the whole experience with the television. Uh, really, it, it sets the tone for everything to come. And it does really kind of take your expectations and flip them on their ass because this whole moment with the television, it, it really gives you so little. You don't know exactly what's happened, but it does play this great trick on you where you think it's cutting away. You think they're not going to show the gore. It feels very PG-13. And then later on, when you're least expecting it, it it gives you this reveal that is a phenomenally placed jump scare <laughs> that will make you shit your pants. Oh, I would think I, this is it's one of the best jump scares in all of, in cinema history. Uh, it really is. I mean, it just punches you in the gut. I mean, you're not expecting it. But yeah, otherwise, this opening scene is just very I, I like it. Very PG. Like you said, it's just very PG. There's there, there's not much in terms of gore fright anything it's just it's just kind of straightforward but we cut then to the little boy aiden coloring in his empty classroom with his concerned teacher um, and aiden is a is a face that horror fans will recognize not only from the ring but he also played jedediah in the texas chainsaw massacre remake this is little david dorfman who fits this role well. I, I appreciate that they don't make this child a huge focal point of the film. Um, in fact, it's probably one of the most neglected <laughs> children in horror movie history. And that's perfectly fine with me because it gives us Naomi Watts, this character who shows up to the classroom late on her telephone, walking in the door, cursing up a storm, saying shit before she hangs up. I, I like the fact that within seconds, Rachel Keller, the, the our protagonist, is kind of introduced to us as a, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, She's a mess, is what she is. <laughs> a mess. A, troub- a troubled character. A... Somewhat of a yeah, she's she's flawed. That's the word I'm looking for. Oh, but her flaws make her such a um, such a standout character because she's not like the perfect hero or heroine. She's in some ways almost like an anti-hero. She falls into the situation of having to, you know, protect herself, but then also protect her child who is severely neglected. But through this journey, really makes him a thing of of. Uh, concern and she's you can tell she's really wanting to solve this because she knows her child's life is eventually going to become uh, at stake um, and so 
when she does care, I feel like she cares hard. And even though she is flawed, uh, she genuinely does want the best for this child. And she talks to him like an adult because he is a, like a little adult. It's weird. Like he has like a, like almost like a Daco- Dakota Fanning syndrome where he's so mature in everything he does. And David Dorfman does a great job with it. Like he really does. He's a moon faced boy. He's got big fawn eyes, his face and his, his weird vocal expressions. Oh, Rachel, like the way he talks to her, it's, 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 strangely evolved and it makes for a really cool relationship between mother and child because in a lot of ways they do a really good job of making it clear he's almost taking care of her um in 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 multiple ass areas of their life uh because he's just this strangely well-developed child who's i mean clearly i don't know like i'm guessing this kid is maybe like slightly autistic or something because they do hint that he is just uh, very fixated on his drawing. He's very fixated on strange, unique little quirks and mannerisms, but they play it really respectfully and elegantly. I think it's a great character, to be honest. Yeah, there's this underlining like mystery about this child that uh, I guess the the assumption is for us, the viewers, to make is this child has some sort of psychic ability, right? Or definitely a heightened, heightened awareness. Um, you can also tell that this child is 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 very this Aiden is very used to his mother's quote unquote neglect. Now she's not beating him, she's not starving, and we're not talking about that type of neglect. But it's very obvious that Aiden a lot of times has to uh, fend for himself, and you can tell by he is not a bit surprised that she's late, that she's coming into the classroom cussing. You know, she sends him out, and there's this moment with the teacher that gives us kind of our first clue that Aiden is possibly has some psychic abilities and it's when she's talking to uh, Rachel about Aiden and being concerned because he are, he is making these weird drawings and these drawings of like what we find out is his cousin. We find out Katie, the girl from the opening scene is Aiden's cousin and he's drawing her in like, (laughs) like in a casket, like buried. And you know, Rachel says, well, that's nothing really to worry about. I mean, he's just dealing with it as his, his cousin just died three days ago. He's dealing with it the only way he knows how. And the teacher's like, uh, you say she died three days ago. Uh, he drew these, uh, a week ago. Such a great introduction to so many layered elements of, of all of these characters. Like we've missed, we've listed so many things that in one scene we've learned about them. We've learned about Rachel being a fucking clusterfuck and just her life being fucking disarray, which I love about her. You know, we learned that she's not necessarily the most organized parent. She's rough around the edges. She's swearing up a storm, even the way she talks to this teacher. And we learned that this kid is obviously, yes, he's evolved in, in some of his, some of his aspects of just how he operates uh, especially with his mother, but in general, he's just, he's a unique individual um, and that stands out about him. But there's this, yeah, this underlying element that's definitely something psychic or some kind of connection he has to this force that's going to come into play more and more over the course of the rest of the movie. Uh, a great intro to these two. Um, you don't need a lot of words in this film to learn a lot about what's going on. Oftentimes it's in the moments of silence or minimal dialogue that this film tells a lot of its story, which I really love about it. So, you know, obviously Rachel leaves the classroom a little bit concerned, but not really thinking much of it until that night when she gets home and she's tucking Aiden into bed and Aiden, yeah, he's just like this little adult. He's a little man. And he, before Rachel goes, he's like, 
one thing that I remember that caught me off guard when I first watched this film, because I saw this film in the theaters, Roger, and I remember it just catching me off guard quite a bit, was that he calls her Rachel. He doesn't call her mom. He calls her Rachel. And I just don't remember another film where a child calls their parent by their first name. So it was really like jarring to hear this little like eight-year-old Billy refer to his mom as Rachel. <laughs> He's like, Rachel. And she's like, yeah. And he says, we don't have enough time. And she's like, well, what do you mean by that? You're young. You don't have to worry about that. And he says, no, Katie even told me that she knew she didn't have enough time. Um, that she knew she was going to die. It's just like a little moment, maybe a 30 second scene. But again, it, it gives us, uh, it tunes us into Aiden being on this spiritual, deeper level, right? Can we take a, a split second to acknowledge uh, just how stunningly gorgeous Naomi Watts is in this film, by the way. Like, I mean, we just got to get it out on the table because we're going to bring it up again. Great, great in the role of Rachel. Warm and likable, yet often troubled and and dealing with her own shit. But there's this underlying current of likability that she possesses that you, you like her more and more as the film goes on. Even as she fucks up, there's still something really endearing about her. Yet at the same time, she manages to be hauntingly beautiful. <laughs> Like she is it's just a vision of beauty from beginning to end. Even at, even when she's soaking wet and covered in scars after falling down a fucking well, she, Naomi Watts in this movie is just breathtaking, breathtaking. And oftentimes it's really hard to find beautiful people <laughs> to be also like relatable <laughs> or completely likable. Like oftentimes it puts me off if certain characters are just unrelatable in their beauty, but she makes it fucking work. I mean, she is just stunning to look at and you like her. And I mean, God, holy shit. I remember that when I saw this movie, I was just like, who is this woman? I had no idea up to this point. I didn't know her catalog. And this was my introduction to her. And it just, this performance, every second she demands this film. Yeah. I mean, it's, it set her, it set her career on the right track. We can say that because the following year she did get the a best actress Oscar nomination for 21 grams. That film was Sean Penn, uh, which she's amazing in, but I feel like this set her, her career definitely on a right, the right track. Um, you know, so yeah. And she's stunning. She's stunning in this. It cuts to them getting ready for the funeral. And again, little clues that like Aiden is the one in control because she's running around the house in her bra and panties. She can't find her fucking black dress. Where's my black dress? She goes out in the living room. Aiden has it already. He has her whole outfit already laid out like a little gay man. He has it all coordinated there perfectly (laughs) for he's putting his little tie on in the mirror. I mean, he has his shit together. I feel like this moment here very much harkens to, um, and only in this scene, I don't want to beat this over the head, but for a moment, you can tell that they're trying to tap into the energy, the vibe that was established by the Sixth Sense a few years prior. Mm. This whole funeral sequence, the way that they play the character of Aiden, I definitely think there was some inspiration that he took from uh, that performance, or at least maybe they they said to him, we want you to play it like this, because this whole funeral scene... The whole thing of the parents breaking down crying, the way they shoot this moment going around, getting little tidbits of clues, putting things together. It feels very Sixth Sense. Uh, It doesn't stay there for a long time, but this moment very much harkened to that film for me, Um, but in a complimentary way. I think that movie was another one uh, within the same kind of era that set the tone for the horror movies to come. Um, And I understand why they maybe would want to kind of recreate that vibe a little bit for this ghost story. 
I definitely see that. I can definitely see the parallels. You're right. There, the funeral scene, just some, yeah, some of the mannerisms that Aiden has that he shares in, in, in common with the Cole character, Haley Joel Osment from The Sixth Sense. Definitely there are parallels there, but you are right. It's not like banging you over the head with them. But I mean, think about it. Sixth Sense was a couple years before this and was a huge, huge box office success, huge critical success. Uh, got an Oscar nomination for Best Picture, which is unheard of for a, a horror film. So it's not surprising that another supernatural film with a decent budget would want to kind of um, take uh, homage from that, right? Knowing how big of a hit it was. It's kind of like this. When this film became a major box office success, which it did, this was huge. Um, look what came after it, the grudge, dark water, like we talked about. So it's just, it's just kind of a natural progression. Anytime a certain type of film hits it big, we see a lot of, I don't want to say copycats, but we see a lot of films that are in that vein. Look at what happened with scream and then the slasher craze that came after it. It just, it's natural. So after the funeral, uh, everyone goes to the sister's house. Ru- what's her name? Ruthie, I believe. Yeah. Uh, who was Katie's mother. And we find out then that we find out then that Rachel and Ruthie are sisters. And Katie was like, we talked about Rachel's niece and uh, Ruthie is quite upset. And she lets us in on the fact that Rachel is a reporter and is good at asking questions and getting information. And she tells Rachel, I need you to figure out what happened to my daughter because there's no scientific explanation for it. The doctors don't know what happened to her. There's no reason a 16 year old girl's heart should just stop. And then she makes the comment. She says, and Rachel, I saw her face and it slam cuts into a flashback of her opening that fucking closet and that fucking distorted, horrific fucking Amber Tamlin dummy in the, in the closet on the floor that I guarantee you scarred and scared a shit ton of people you can't tell me that the first time that you any of you listeners have seen this movie you can't tell me that this moment did not fucking horrify the shit out of you this is and this is exactly what i meant earlier in saying that the opening scene you at this point you i don't want to say you've forgotten it you've just you're you're moving on with the story you're not necessarily thinking about those characters katie is now deceased so for them to come back and bring you back into that moment and give you a reveal that truly uh is horrific and and you only see it for a moment but boy do you see it uh and the dislocated jaw gaping hanging open her eyes just like sunken pools of blackness it is a visual that has stuck with people um and i think you know films have recruit tried to recreate this moment have tried to recreate this uh overall aesthetic for the ghost or the corpse or whatever, you know, they've tried to recreate that kind of a gaping mouth visual that no other film has been able to replicate. This movie set a precedence for this kind of a, a jump scare, this scale of a, a scare coming fucking out of nowhere and just really getting the audience and grabbing them by the balls and saying, we're only, you know, at this point, maybe 15 minutes into the story, just you wait, you have no idea what's about to fucking come. Um, really one of the, the most well-placed edits in a horror movie in general. They did a great job with this moment. And this is one of the many things that I think this film does much better than the original. 
the, the very similar scene in the original film, but it's just not a, as effective because it doesn't look as terrifying. In the original Ringu, I don't know how many people have seen it that are listening. It's a very similar setup, very similar kind of little jump scare. However, there's no like, it's just the actor making a, 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 a distorted face. There's no makeup. There's nothing like applied. It's just literally the actor with a open in her mouth in a distorted way. That's it. It's not as, it's not as effective. Rick Baker did the makeup effects for, for this, for the ring, the remake, the one we're talking about. And you can tell, I mean, it's, it's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's, it is one of the more terrifying images from a horror film of, of all time. And it is again, much more frightening and visceral than the original film gave us. So right there, that's a check for this film for me huge yeah 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 huge huge check so uh, after this after we're like our hearts are on the fucking floor and we're uh, cleaning the shit out of our pants probably after this particular scene when we first saw it um we cut to rachel going outside where she stumbles upon a couple of teenage girls smoking just discussing the whole scenario We, we find out through these girls that becca is now in a mental hospital rachel says, you know, very sensible. She's like, well, could they have been just doing drugs? I mean, could this have been a a hallucination? And by God, Roger, this is when a a handsome, young Adam Brody interrupts. A cherubic. Cherubic Adam Brody. Oh, he's so adorable. Always. Always so handsome. Um, and I mean, it's so funny because, you know, he's he was already kind of established at this point, 2002. Like, he was definitely, like, recognizable. He, this is a very small role, you know. And Adam Brody has always been one to take on tiny parts in films, like supporting roles. One thing I like about him is he's someone who is in so many movies and supporting smaller character roles. And that's kind of what he's made his career off of almost in a way, um, which, you know, makes it honestly his career really fun there's so many cool parts he's played in movies and you're like oh my god I fucking forget that was him but this is one of his his earlier roles and it, it really is funny because it's such a small moment but he's pretty much setting the groundwork for what is the backstory behind this tape we've heard about this tape up to this point but he's pretty much establishing this tape is real uh it, it, it exists we know people who have watched it. Um, the, her boyfriend, Katie's boyfriend, who also watched this tape, is my friend Josh. He is also dead, and he was apparently recently killed himself the same day that Katie died. Yes, yes, and yeah, that's all the reveal we need. So it puts the idea into Rachel's head that there might be something bigger going on. Uh, in the meantime, Aiden has wandered upstairs into Katie's uh, bedroom. And he's just like staring at the blank TV and Rachel comes in and she tells him, Hey, come on, let's, you shouldn't be in her room. And he just very matter of factly says, it's not her room anymore. I mean, there are little, like there are little creepy things this kid says, but like, it's not like, I don't feel like they're painting this early. The intention was to make this Aiden character creepy. I know a lot of people mention Aiden as a, creepy kid and whore. I don't get that vibe. I think the vibe that I get more from Aiden is just mature. He ha- he's had to mature. He's had to take care of himself. So he comes off as being very matter of fact. Uh, I never really get the creepy vibe from him. Uh, what I get is as a kid who is just wise beyond his years. Yeah. I think that's why I used the term earlier and, and respectfully. So I almost get like a slight, uh, 
maybe like an Asperger's from him um, because he is very matter of fact. He's not filtered in the way that he communicates with Rachel. Uh, a lot of his choices and how he communicates are almost um, strangely, like I said, evolved or advanced. The fact that he refers to her by her first name, he has these little quirks and these little ticks about him. But again, it, it makes him, it paints him almost in an endearing light because uh, the, the way he takes care of his mother, uh, the way he holds some of his conversations later on with another character who you find out has a relationship with him, it's unusually mature and evolved. Um, and almost uh, disjointed in a way, uh, but I like that about him. One thing I have to acknowledge at this point, because we're starting to get into the world that exists around them, it's set against this beautiful Seattle skyline for a portion of the movie, and it's very dreary, it's very gray. We mentioned it's very blue, um, and, and it just works into the movie so well, um, the color palette. But one thing I very much appreciate is this being one of the earlier or if not the, the original to start the trend, uh, retellings of you know an Asian horror film, a Japanese horror film specifically, this film did not fall into... It, it didn't fall into the trope that has kind of developed that if you're remaking a piece of Asian horror cinema, you have to make it feel like it is, in fact, a piece of Asian horror cinema. A lot of American remakes, I found, insist that if they're retelling the story, they have to kind of dip the whole film in, you know, strong Asian, uh, you know, traditional visuals, um, cinematography styles, oftentimes setting it in Japan or, you know, China or Thailand or wherever it, it, it's rooted, the original film is based out of, a lot of times they have to take it there, like The Grudge started that, where they actually go to Japan, um, and it, it thus, it works for The Grudge, but I feel more and more a lot of these movies um, started to kind of lose their identity by too strongly trying to become what they were remaking. And the thing that doesn't work with that for me is, you know, Asian horror, Asian lore, if you will, um, you know, the, the paranormal and how they interpret it, it's very different from how we depict our ghost, how we depict spirits, the meaning, the intention behind them. In a lot of ways, it's a lot deeper. Uh, when you look at like the backstories of a lot of these pieces of Asian horror cinema, there is um, a lot of meaning behind a haunting. And I think that The Ring works in so many ways because it was a first attempt at trying to retell a piece of Asian horror cinema. And while it still managed to create its own identity, they very much developed their own color palette for this movie. They, they rooted it in American culture and traditions, and they really just retold the basic core storyline of what Ringu is. They retold it for an American audience without trying to make it something that it originally was that I just don't think an American film can recapture. And I think that works so much in its favor. It's trying to be its own thing while tipping its hat to the original material and honoring it through certain visuals, through, you know, plot points and, and key sequences it's recreating, but it does it in its own way for an American audience. And for, because of that, it still feels completely fresh. Like it's its own thing. Um, and it works just greatly in its favor. Yeah, I mean, I I think you you nailed it. I mean, I have I, I basically have that that same note throughout my throughout my throughout my notes for this film. So I'm glad you hit on that. The fact that this film did its own thing, and, and it even I think it even 
Americanizes the actual lore behind the the videotape and and the the the, um, the Samara character who we end up finding out is kind of the evil entity in the in the film. The, the story they give her in the American version is much different than the story they give her in the Asian version, and I think it works. You know, um, I I love the Seattle dreariness. Um, of, I love the the look of the film, and yeah, you're right. I mean, they they really avoided the the temptation to use a lot of the, you know, Asian stylistic filmmaking choices and really made this their own film. And it, I mean, I think that's why it resonated so much with the, with American audiences and, and audiences across the world. It's because it was its own thing. You know, Ringu was a phenomena when it came out, it, it made waves outside of Japan, but this film, I think because it did its own thing, fans of Ringu could look at this and, and really respect it on the same level that they respected the original film because it it's not copying it it's 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 taking up the basic very basic storyline and just retelling it in its own unique vision and i think that's what makes the film stand above a lot of the other like american foreign or for american remakes of foreign films because you're right they do fall into the trap of trying too hard to capture the the look and feel of the the film they're emulating. Back in the room, Rachel is is snooping around once Aiden leaves, and she finds a receipt for um, photo a photo store uh, for pictures that apparently Katie never picked up. So what she does is she takes that little photo slip and she goes the next day and picks up the photos. And for those youngins who don't remember. <laughs> the idea of developing film there was an old time where you had to take you took pictures with the camera and you actually had to take the film out and have it developed <laughs> it seems so ancient roger i haven't done i mean l- watching this film i was like holy shit that's only 2002 but that feels like something that is so far removed from us now right oh yeah that's i would say one of the only things that does make this film feel at all dated in any way is the technology in it you know like the the whole uh, focus on televisions. You get a lot of them. There's a lot of TVs in this movie, and they are the big boxy, you know, uh, very much of like just at the millennium, you have these really big screens starting to come around, but they're still, they're not flat screens. You know, they have the box behind them. They're huge and they're hulking, which plays in this film's favor because of what happens. I'll say that. Um, but that really is the only thing about this movie that does stand out as dated to me, and it still plays strongly into the story i wouldn't necessarily want to see this remade with modern technology i like that it's set in 2000 it's the perfect era for this film but um it's the only thing that kind of you know takes you out of the moment makes you think oh this is in the past because everything else about this movie honestly has aged very well the look the style the cgi like come on it looks great no, I have that same note. This film has aged very well. There were just a few little things like the picking up photos. I was like, oh, wow, I don't, uh, that's, that's so like, wow, it's been forever. But she picks up the photos. She's going through them. So because she picked up these photos, she gets to see that these kids, you know, including Katie, were at Shelter Mountain Inn that weekend. And as she's going through the photos, she notices as she's getting to the end of them that all of the kids' faces in the photos have become distorted in the pictures. And what she ends up doing then is she's, she does some digging. She's a reporter for the Seattle Times. So she goes to work and she just calls up, you know, coroner friends and whatnot to, to find the times of deaths of all of these people that Katie was with that night. And 
they all, she finds out, died at 10 p.m., which cannot be a coincidence, correct? Oh, absolutely not. And it really then, it really then sets her on this journey that the film takes where she decides she's going to take a trip to Shelter Mountain. She gets there. The owner's a very friendly guy, wants to do a card trick with her. She asks him about the kids. Hey, did you see these kids? He says, yes, they were here, but they did not pay. And uh, she sees that he has a nice collection of videotapes. He's like, yeah, we really don't have like cable out here or anything. So I just have this collection of videotapes that uh, I let my, you know, my guests watch. So she then says that she's very tired and she's going to rent a cabin before she drives back. And she might as well take cabin 12. So as he's prepping the paperwork for the cabin, she goes over to the videotape shelf and she notices one just sitting there without a, a sleeve. So she takes that and heads back to the cabin, to cabin 12 to check it out. This whole property is very, it's beautiful, but it just definitely has an ominous tone to it. The cabins are sort of run down, you know, it's surrounded by just nature and ominous looking trees and it just fits the whole vibe of the film very very well there's a few little moments leading up to this where it's it's funny i I look at this movie i think that oh it's such a dry piece of horror um it really it's, it's not trying to be in any way comical but it does have a sense of humor the little moment of her with her boss where he like comes up he's like you're fired and she's like no i'm not i have a great story and she like shoes him away and he just goes like or the little moment with the guy with the card trick you know and he's showing her all the wrong cards and finally she's like you got it you know it has a slight sense of self-aware humor um mostly in what Rachel possesses how she responds to people. Um, it never goes over the top. It always feels very natural, but it's not like so serious that like you can't chuckle along with a few of these little moments. I like that about it. That it has this little kind of element of humor to it. Um, but like I said, it's not a big overwhelming aspect of the film. Yeah, no. I mean, it's definitely a serious. This is a serious horror film. This is. I, I wouldn't say it's dry, but it's it's serious. But there are little tiny tiny comedic moments in it that i that i do appreciate and yeah the whole card running card trick gag with the owner is is uh is one of them again i'm gonna keep track of my little column here between this and the remake and i hate to, or this in the original i hate to do that but just like one thing that stood out to me watching this film and then watching the original is that this property in this cabin in the remake this 2002 version is so much more ominous looking and run down like i was surprised watching the the original one is like it looks like a the the hotel room she goes in to watch the videotape looks like a like a holiday inn it's I'm like they didn't even like really try to make it all that creepy but maybe that was the whole point i don't know rachel i mean despite knowing that people say that um they're gonna die if, in seven days if you watch this film she pops it in the vcr and i think this is like every Buddy that went and saw this film kind of knew the basic, you know, I think the the advertisements and stuff for this film gave kind of the, the idea that there was a videotape that you watched, you were going to die. And because the marketing used very short, like two second, three clips from this videotape. So I guarantee you, and I, this was me because I remember like this was the biggest, like the, the most anticipated part of this entire film was when Rachel pops the VCR tape in and we see it for the first time. I guarantee you everyone was on the edge of their seats because it, the the marketing made it the 
premiere thing. What's on this videotape? And you know, I, I, I remember being like, shit, what are we going to see? Is this going to be how fucking terrifying is it? And while it's, it's terrifying and there's definitely a lot of creepy images, it's like nothing that's overtly like, like sinister. I, I would say it's, it's definitely ominous. I mean, we get, we get images of like dead horses. We get that broad brush in her hair in the mirror. We get um, a, just weird shots of like a ladder, uh, a fingernail being broken off. Um, and of course the ring, we, we see this, like this, uh, white outlined ring. Um, it's just a lot of shots of different things, but they all end up making or being connected to the story and what's going on. The thing about the video is like, yeah, it's, it's not something, it, it never makes you like jump. It makes you cringe. You know, you see the nail come off the finger and your butthole clenches for a second, but the, the the thing that really stands out for me is, yeah, the visuals are great. They do feel slightly of the era. You know, you've got that bit that's digital centipede and everything. It looks great. But really, to, to me, the most unsettling aspect about it is the sound design. There is this, like, I mean, first of all, you got the sound of the static. You know, you have this, like, video distortion. But there's, like, this intense like humming almost like a screeching shrill noise that you hear running over it it's not like a score it just sounds like a honestly like yeah like some kind of distortion audio distortion blaring that um really becomes synonymous with the visuals and you know watching it is one thing but hearing it is another and it does it's almost in a way it becomes kind of like this completely separate experience like you watch the video and it is so strange and it does leave you thinking after the fact what does all of this mean like how is this relevant um you almost feel like you watch something taboo it, it, it's funny how this video has developed um like a, a phenomenon around it like at the time it came out like yes everyone wanted to know what was on the tape and i would say that i feel like it delivers just because it is so well thought out all of these disturbing visuals have important meaning you know all of it is definitely relevant it's not like they just threw a bunch of random scary visuals together like all of it is interpretations of things that you're going to be learning along the way and they very delicately and intentionally hand you these details at the most random of times um and it does make that video take on like a life of its own um so i really appreciate what they did with this video i think it's it's something that is uh, so unique, unlike anything else we've gotten from uh, other horror films of the time. But God, it really defined a sense of style, that editing style where you get glimpses, flutters of visuals sporadically across the screen tied into the video. They utilize it so well over the course of the movie, even for transitional moments. And I just got to say, like this, this video really is, is something kick ass. <laughs> I mean, I think it, it stands out still to this day. No, it doesn't. And it's meant to be a puzzle. You know, um, it's a puzzle. And luckily, Rachel, she does what she does for a living because she's able to kind of decipher the puzzle slowly. But it's a puzzle and all these glimpses mean something. And I think that you get a character like Rachel who is smart enough to realize that what's on this tape has to mean something. It has to have come from somewhere. So it has to mean something. Yeah. So she watches the video. And, you know, she's, you can tell she's definitely disturbed by it, but then the phone rings and that's perhaps the scariest part of the movie, because when she answers the phone, we just get that screechy voice that says seven days. 
and it's like, oh shit. But then I like I like the stylistic approach the film takes now because then we get that ominous dun. Oh my god! And it starts counting down the days. It's Thursday, day one, and little Noah going to school by himself. He got himself ready for school, put his little raincoat on. He goes running, walking down the street, and he runs into a man. You know, another man carrying an umbrella, and they have a, 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 a staring little encounter for a few seconds. Kind of awkward. Neither of them say anything to each other, and they go on their way. And we, we find out ultimately that this guy, his, his name is Noah, who, who, Roger, I forgot how handsome Goddamn. Uh, Martin Henderson is in this, those piercing blue eyes. Oh my goodness. God damn martin henderson oh my god he's so fucking handsome i forgot how great he is as noah like yes okay naomi watts fucking killing it is rachel whole cast is great but what a great like secondary lead for her character like so many times you have this male character who is not like prominently utilized he's just there as kind of like a foil to like kind of move things along but there are times that he kind of you know takes off and does his own thing and the focus transitions over to him and he's a vital part of her getting her work done because i really do like that rachel like has no time at all to really question or consider that maybe this is not a real thing like as soon as she gets that fucking phone call you could tell in her facial expression and her fleeing from that cab and spinning around like goddamn julie james and i know what you did last summer you know that she knows that something is afoot and as soon as she starts showing him these photos of her bloated face, all distorted and all these fucking pictures she's taken of herself, like there's no room to question it. She sold and she knows that her time is running short. Well, yes. And one thing I want to say about Noah is, again, it's why I think the this and this is the last time I'll kind of make a comparison between the original remake but one of the big problems i have with the original film is that the noah type character in the original is absolutely unbearable like he is just hostile aggressive um horrible to to the lead and it's just super unlikable and i when i was watching the remake or the original i'm like i forgot how just like uh, of a big of an asshole this character is. And it surprises me because it makes what happens ultimately way less effective. You're actually kind of rooting for it. Whereas in this case, Noah is a very charming, likable character. Yeah. He has a little bit of maybe some douchey qualities to him that we find out, but overall he does not treat Rachel like shit in the original that this character is yelling at the girl, making her cry. I'm like, Jesus fuck. Uh, Noah is a, is a really well-written charming character. And you know, there's the whole thing. Like they recreate the scene because there's the exact same scene where the little boy and the dad run into each other in the rain and you kind of get that white shot of them just staring at each other. You do get that um, in both. And I, I like that parallel, but like, God damn, this character in the original is such a fucking asshole. So I think that's another thing that just makes this remake work a little bit better because we actually like Noah and care about him probably as much as we do Rachel. So it really, I, I feel like, I don't know if there's a moral question that comes into play with Rachel being so, uh, what's the word? She uh, allowing 
Noah to watch the videotape. Has, has have you thought about that? Like, I know he says he wants to watch it. I know, like, he kind of has to watch it. But like, I mean, she knows at this point. She knows that like this is probably going to kill him if he watches it. Does it? Does that? Does that affect your thought process about the character at all? Or are you like, it's just, she had to do what she had to do and he's willing to watch it because what does he know? Right. I think at that point it is so early on, like if anything, I I would expect a little more doubt from her. Like, yes, I know she got the phone call. I feel like afterwards when she runs outside to like look around, she's convinced someone's maybe playing a joke on her. And yes, she has the whole thing where her photos are distorted and looking weird and everything. But overall in the great scheme of things, I just don't think she knows the overall scale of severity. Like, what exactly is at play? She's got a few pieces of the puzzle, but this is still early on in the film. And I don't think she completely understands the layers of, you know, what comes with watching the video itself. True, but she just found out like five people that watched it all died at the exact same time. It's not like, you know, that's not known to her. As the film goes on, Troy, it does get progressively more that, like, other people come into play and she's like, do not show the video. Like, I think she feels a layer of guilt. I do think she feels some guilt about it. Well, and I think he's like, he he even makes a comment later and he's like, oh, you had no problem showing it to me. <laughs> she's like, no, I did have a problem showing it to you, but I kind of had to so that you could help me. Um, no, I mean, I'm not disparaging the character. I just, it's one of those things you have to think about. Like, she knowingly shows him the video or she allows him to see it. Uh but no, I, I understand what you're saying as well. Um, but he sees the video and his his reaction is very ho-hum. He's like, yeah, it's kind of a, it's very student film. The phone does ring, but they don't answer it. And he just like, he's like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a creepy video, but whatever. And she's like, no, I need you to find out who made it and where it came from. So he agrees that he's going to at least help her with that. That, at that at that moment, she goes to work. She makes a copy of the tape, uh, which is very important. <laughs> and then she goes back to Noah's apartment, who has he has a lovely studio loft apartment in downtown Seattle. Uh, he gives she gives him the tape. He tries to mess around with it when he realizes it has no control track. Which, in theory, then the tape should not have anything on it because he he, he has explains to her a control track is like a fingerprint. Every tape should have it or it shouldn't play. Um, and then they do this thing where they watch the tape together and they are really, really analyzing every like frame in the tape. And, and when, when they're doing this, Rachel notices that one of the frames of like the ocean, there's like a cliff there. She can see that there's something else kind of in the corner. So they try to stretch it out and they do realize that there's a whole nother frame that, that is hidden and needs to be pulled over. And, they're trying to argue over who's going to stretch it out the best and the tape, you know, snaps or whatever. And that is when Noah's assistant comes in and interrupts. This girl with the fucking harsh bangs. The harsh bangs. And there's like this underlying element that him and the, there's this underlying element that her and Noah are probably in a relationship because she gives him a kiss. Makes Rachel really uncomfortable. Um, and Noah's like, you're right. Noah's like, hey, let her see this. She's she's a film student too. And, and Rachel takes the tape. It's like, no, I got to go. I'm going to go. And as she's leaving, they do get into this little spat and she tells him he needs to grow up. You can tell. I, th- I think it's emerging at this point that they definitely have a, a history together and all there may be way more to their relationship than what, what it seems, which ends up being the case. There's so many little things along through this whole sequence that have happened that I think 
I really like have to acknowledge the tiny details that they scatter all throughout the film to make it clear that things are not normal. Because like, you know, she you said she went and she got the tape and made a copy of it. There's that whole fucking moment with that broad with the pigtails leading her through the fucking studio. And so she goes to make the tape and you do have this whole sequence where like she could see that the numbers are off. She pauses the video when she pauses the video. There is a fly on the screen. This is a pretty pivotal moment because when she's looking at the visual, it's clear that like the fly looks like it's still moving or buzzing, but it's just subtle enough she can't tell. It comes back to that. Um, so many things that come up that are just little cookie crumbs that are kind of leading her along the way to find a, a solution to what her questions are about the tape. But these really great little striking moments, it is worth noting, you know, he is a photographer and uh, works with photo and video. I think the other big playing factor of why she contacted him is because he's her go-to for, you know, things like this. Um, and so he is able to provide a lot of information on like what you're saying, you know, you're making a copy, there'd be a code, we'd be able to track it. This is not normal. So he is a very valuable tool for her. And this whole moment that they have this argument, she's a great character, but she is unusually cold with him she immediately is like oh the, now you make it a joke and blah 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 and you don't believe me and and she snaps on him and he just kind of waves her goodbye you can tell that this is old hat for them they've been through this fight a million times before but it's pretty quick that she turns on him i almost think it is her element of guilt in a way um you know she's not wanting the girlfriend to watch the video because she doesn't want to put her in danger so she instantly gets very reactive to him um and doesn't want to explain why because she's realizing just how severe all of this is yeah there's a moment when she leaves his apartment after this little argument that she sees a ladder that is against a wall and it looks it looks exactly like the the, the shot we get in the the video and i think it's kind of the first of, of many little things that she sees around her that um, are represented in the video, which is, you know, kind of like the, the, the video is coming to life in front of her. And, and it, as the film goes on, you realize, yes, that's that as, as, as it gets closer to your seventh day, you are going to see all of these symbols in some manner come in your, into the real world. There's a moment after this that she, it's day three now. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. It's Saturday, day three. She does, she goes to the mental ward to visit Becca. And there's this whole great moment where like Becca is walking to the room to meet um, Rachel and they have to like have her walk in front of a sheet because she won't, she freaks out at TVs. So, but she gets into the room with, with Rachel and really just kind of is catatonic. She refuses to say anything until Rachel's like, please help me. Can you tell me who, you know, who did she, who did, who did uh, Katie see? How did this happen? And Becca takes her hand and she's like, you'll find out. She's going to tell you in four days. I'm not sure how much this broad witnessed regarding Katie's actual death. Um, but uh, you know, all of a sudden, she's very in tune what the fuck is going on here. And she's able to even determine that Rachel only has four days left. I don't understand what Becca... Maybe when you see Samara doing her thing, you take on these... I don't know, psychic abilities or something like that. But it's real quick that this Beck is able to predict the future and be in tune with things. I thought that was weird. I could have done without the scene, honestly. Like if I was editing this film or like looking at the final, I could have, I would have cut this scene out because it really, I mean, I guess, I guess it gives us a tiny little insight into the, into somebody that was there when, when the shit went down and now is fucking uh, in a mental ward because of it. But I feel like, that was already mentioned like yeah this i it felt very like 
I don't know. I hate to use this word when I'm talking about this film because I, I think I, I hold this film in high regard, but this whole moment felt very hokey to me. Yeah, I like that they brought the character back because I think you you do want to have some closure. You know, she's in the opening and then she just kind of disappears. So I think her presence was was welcome. But I think that they kind of do rush through this moment. Like all of a sudden, she's just given Rachel more reason to be scared about what the fuck's about to happen. Doesn't really answer any questions. She's just she's just foreboding. Uh, and then we're moving on. And then we're moving on to that fucking photo lab with the broad with the pigtails. Oh, that broad, that big lesbian with the pigtails. I love her. I love, I love her. her so much. Lumberjack. <laughs> It's lumberjack lesbian is what I have her down at, but no, yeah. So she's showing her how to use all this fancy, all these gizmos for how to, you know, adjust tracking and whatnot. And she can print out pictures from the video, which she does, and she's fucking around with it. And she does finally get to stretch that one frame all the way out, and she gets an image of a lighthouse that she's able to print. So she prints the image of the lighthouse, and this is the whole scene you talked about earlier with the fly appearing and she picks the fly off of the the screen and then all of a sudden gets a nosebleed which comes into play it seems like on the fourth day of watching the videotape you get a nosebleed apparently it is really well played though that all of these things are kind of happening like she's never not being haunted by this tape and what's fucking going down like at this point Everywhere she looks, there's something that's hitting at it. And this whole moment with the fly, because like I mentioned earlier, you have this little moment earlier where she notices she thinks the fly is moving, um, but she kind of just plays it off. This time, when she reaches in to grab it, very suspenseful moment. It doesn't even feel like it should be scary, but the way they do it, the CGI in this is unusually good for the era, and they just show enough of it before it like goes out of focus that you're like, holy fuck, she just pulled a goddamn fly out of the television, very much hitting at what's to come. Um, and then you have a nosebleed, and it's like running down her face. That lesbian shows up. She's like, you got something. And uh, it just like... <laughs> well-timed everything is just building and you're like what the fuck is happening well and it leads to fuck a library scene and you know me i'm a live i love a good library scene i mean i mean basically rachel she's a reporter she's good at she's good at research she now has a picture of a lighthouse she goes to the library the, the librarian brings her like every book imaginable on lighthouses and i i kind of i i uh okay i get it I, I do not want to spend a lot of time with a character in a library, but I do feel like she found this particular lighthouse pretty damn quick. Like it's the second page she opens up in the book and it's just that lighthouse. I'm like, oh geez, that was, that was convenient. Um, but it's, it's a lighthouse on Moesco Island. And then she's able to go to the computer and we, we get this whole elaborate research. She's researching Moesco Island and she Googles it and she, find a, 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 she finds this pic of a bunch of old broads with their wine glasses standing in front of Moesco Lighthouse. And guess who's in the picture? That long brown haired woman that's brushing her hair in the picture. So she's now able to find out, oh, that's Anna Morgan. And then she Googles Anna Morgan. And guess what? She finds out that she was showing horses. And guess what? Upon more research, she finds out that she killed herself because all her horses started to die. I mean, it's 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 so it's so quick. Like all of this stuff comes together, like literally in like 30 seconds after she gets to the library. I'm like, oh my God. 
I mean, I think it's implied that she's there for a minute. She's pulling books down. She's going, there's stacks of newspapers all around her. I think she's in that library for a few hours. I think she's doing her research as a journalist does. Um, tell me that that picture of Anna Morgan isn't digitally added in. Is it, is it cropped into that lineup of broads just hanging out with those glasses? I mean, Anna Morgan is a haunting visual, I'll say, with her long dark hair and her milk white skin. Yeah, it reminded me of like, I don't know, pictures of like Maureen Prescott from Scream, just like digitally embedded next to Nev Campbell. I'm like, okay, no, I mean, it's a, it's, it just, I just got a chuckle out of it because it's everything just happens to come together and she finds out all of this information like pronto. Yeah, but she is a journalist. Like, I mean, we got it. That was the smartest decision they could have no. made because oh, she is sleuthing this whole time. I, I would have just like been at Fun Hog all seven. Fun Hog drinking until I fucking dropped dead, or that thing called oh. on one of those televisions that we were watching. Oh Chapel Road, <laughs> Chapel Road climbs out of our TV. I'd be dancing with her before she killed me. At least, at least, at least give me one number, Samara. Oh. <laughs> uh. So we find out all this stuff. Anna, Anna Morgan uh, showed horses, a bunch of her horses died. She committed suicide. Okay. Uh, now we cut to, a, 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 it's a short scene, but it's, I think it's important. It's Noah at that supermarket with that cashier who just ominously, she's like, <laughs> you're going to die. And I was like, How well, presumptuous. <laughs> just- well, I didn't realize I didn't. Okay. So the second, I caught it the second time I watched, I didn't realize he bought a pack of cigarettes and that's why she said that to him. Well, I mean, she does say she's like, my, my cousin used to smoke those things. Quit. Never look back. The first time I guess I was, I was typing notes or something. So I didn't catch that. I'm like, what the fuck? But yeah, she's like, she, he's going to die because he buys cigarettes. And then as he's walking away, he looks up at the security camera and his whole face is blurry. Like the images from the camera pictures that we saw. I'm like, oh boy. Yeah, I really like this little detail. I think it's a really cool effect where you see that like that bloated, blurry visual. Um, and you even notice that that freaking gal <laughs> working the register notices it too. And she's like looking back and forth from him in the screen before he leaves. Um, yeah, cool little detail. He's pretty quick to realize as well shit is going down. And once he once he picks up on this, Noah's on board. I like that a lot about his character. Like he is now in it to win it to help her solve what the fuck is going on yeah well there's a moment he he even goes to her and he's like hey i believe you now let's let's figure this out not before rachel gets home and startles this fucking baby i love this fucking babysitter sarah rue passed out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she is passed out on the recliner snot dripping down her from snoring and she startles her and wakes her up <laughs> this reaction is so much bigger than it needed to be there's that sense of humor again though where she's like oh <laughs> she just jumps awake i love it so much uh, but I, I I feel like now a Rachel's plan is she needs to go to Mesco Island. So the babysitter leaves. She gives her her money. She calls um, her sister Ruthie. Who? Oh my God! I don't know about this. Her her child just died. Like, and you're calling to say, "Hey, can Aiden come and stay with you for?" I'm like, "Oh, probably not a good time. Maybe it'll make her feel better. <laughs> maybe maybe it's what she needs. <laughs> you can tell her reaction. She's like, "What? Are you serious? Oh, come on! Right now." I'm like, oh, but then she starts having this hawk, uh, this coughing attack and choking attack. And she pulls this like long fucking strand of hair attached to uh, like a stethoscope or a, a, a medical suction cup thing out of her goddamn throat. Yeah, it's like a string. It's like a cord that's attached to like one of those things that they put on you when they're doing like, you know, brain 
testing from the olden days. You know what I'm talking about. They used him in Return to Oz, that kind of shit. But, ugh. I don't know what it's called, but she she pukes, she coughs one up. But then she goes into, um, she sees the phone starting to water. And she goes into Aiden's room and we see like a vision. She sees a vision of this girl with long black hair just sitting in a chair in Aiden's room. And she screams and wakes up in her bed. And her whole arm is covered with like, with like, like finger marks. Like, so we, a lot of these images, like we talked about, a lot of these images that are from the video, she's starting to actually see and, and feel and whatnot in, in real life. This gagging shit with her pulling that fucking cord out of her throat, disgusting. Like, it makes my throat clench. And she just keeps pulling it. The string, it keeps coming. I mean, it's like crazy long. And then at the end of it, there's one of those fucking plastic tabs. That's not normal. She's aware of it. So well-timed. The phone starts leaking. That's not normal. And then this whole moment, yeah, where she goes to the bedroom, you know shit fucking weird you got a girl sitting in the middle of the room in a pool of water sitting in a chair looking fucking sopping wet it's the first time we get an actual visual of who is samara um and it's it's really well handled because they you know they cover her face dramatically with that long black hair and for a split second you see you get a visual of her eye and that's all they give you and so they do a really good job building up to this villain reveal because you know up to the pretty much I don't want to say the end of the movie, because you do see her a few times, you know, as a child. But up until the actual conclusion of the film, you don't get a full, clear visual of Samara as an entity until that moment. And they do such a good job of making you want it. You want to see what the fuck is going on with this girl. Well, they were smart, I will say, in in keeping the image of the villain, Samara, in the original at Sudoku. But they keep keep it the same because that's such an iconic image uh from from the original ring the iconic black hair with the eye peeking you know the eyeball sticking out from between the strands of hair so fucking iconic and i think they were super smart to keep that um and, and i mean everything looks exactly the same the long hair the white the white gown she wears they kept they kept it and i i, I think that was super super smart uh, for as much as they did upgrade the story and change it around for, you know, and, change, and tell it kind of their own thing, I'm glad they kept that image of Samara to be identical to Sudoku in the um, original film. Yeah. Because it works really well. Um, but after she wakes up screaming uh, in her bed that morning, and then she, oh, she hears that very familiar, like humming and buzzing noise. And it leads her into the living room where she, the doors are closed and she, she slowly approaches and we can hear a very familiar noise. We know what it is. She knows what it is. And she opens the fucking door just at the moment that the film, the videotape, the cursed videotape ends with the shot of the well with little Aiden sitting there in front of it watching it. This scream that she gives this now, like she gives this blood curdling scream and it is, I mean fucking great i mean goddamn she runs over she she grabs him she covers his face she pulls out the t the tape the vhs she dramatically throws it under the chair which is important and you know she has this moment where she's like why would you why would you watch it and he says because i couldn't sleep and he's just so wide-eyed and innocent and confused i mean he's fucking confused by it um he does come across so just innocent and unassuming um and and you you immediately can tell that she is devastated over this and through all again all of her flaws as a parent 
her response to knowing that her child is in danger is so palpable um, and, and really just makes her seem like she cares. Oh, she cares. Yeah. The scream again, another iconic moment from this film. I think, I think it's even on like the front of the, you know, or it's an image. Like it's like on the front of the videotape or on the front of the DVD cover, her covering her mouth with that fucking scream. Iconic, iconic Naomi Watts, but she does call Noah. But I mean, d- hysterical to tell him he watched the tape and Noah's like, no, I believe you. I believe you. And she's like, no, he watched the tape. And he, he's like, who watched the tape? And she says, our son. And then, you know, that reveal is, I, I, I think, sort of expected, but still comes out of left field. But then you have this moment the next day, which is Sunday now, that Rachel is inside and Noah and Aiden are in the car and they're having this just very um, matter of fact exchange about Noah being his father. And, you know, Noah's like, I'm sorry, I'm not in your life more. Do you want me in your life more? And Noah's like, or Aiden's like, no. And Noah says to him, it's just, it's just because my father was terrible to me. I just don't think I'd be a good dad. But then on the other hand, I don't want anybody else being your dad. (laughs) And little Aiden, it's so funny because the, the babysitter earlier said that they, that Aiden learned a new word while she read him a bedtime or while he read her a bedtime story. It was, it was conundrum. So Aiden tells Noah, it's a conundrum. (laughs) Oh my God. I love this scene between the two of them. I actually think it's one of the standout moments in the film because they do a really good job of taking a character who is very flawed, Noah, and still giving him very human emotions and making it clear that he does care about this kid. He just doesn't necessarily know how to be a good father, but I think he wants to. And you start to see the early development of like him realizing just how much he cares about his son. Um, And so you want him to succeed and you want him to survive because you know that this experience is going to bring him around and make him care more and make him want to be in in Aiden's life, Um, which of course does make for uh, all the more impactful conclusion with that character when we get to it. Yes, which again, I think is a super smart that they made the character the way he, he is and gave these two a relationship because it's definitely a, a 180 degree shift from this character's counterpart in the original film. But Noah and Rachel drive to the Moesco Island. Um, he's going to go to the hospital to find out what he can about Anna and she gets on a ferry to go to the actual island to see if she can track down the Morgan's house, you know, the, 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 the horse farm. So in the ferry, she is kind of has more articles that she photocopied and she gets to like the last one. And she reads mention of like a, what was it? Like a horse going berserk or something at a horse show. And it talked about like, uh, oh, and Anna Morgan was, was cl- clutching her daughter tightly in her arms. And it's like the first mention ever that Anna Morgan had a daughter. She she gets back on the ferry and she sees a trailer with a horse. Now, we've realized horses are really important to this whole story and setup. And, you know, she's conversing with the horse. And this horse literally, I mean, Roger, this horse starts going berserk to the point where it busts out. I mean, it's kicking the sides of its trailer, but it ultimately busts out of the trailer and it's like running free on top of cars and shit through this ferry standout standout scene that is really hard to watch because of what happens to the poor horse. 
Oh, and it takes its time. I mean, this this is not a rush moment. It really is one of the, the strongest moments in the film. They handle it so well. I will say, like, girl, like, get your fucking hands away from that horse. That's not your horse. Like, why are you provoking this horse? And, like, take a hint. Like, the horse with its dead black eyes, just pools of darkness looking back at, uh, looking back at her. Um, you know, the horse is not happy that Naomi Watts is provoking it. Like the horse is like huffing and puffing and she's like, oh, it's fine. She's like, it's okay. that she puts her hand back in. Shocked it doesn't try to fucking bite it off. And then eventually, after about five minutes of being harassed by Naomi Watts, <laughs> this horse then does finally bust out that door and start running all the fuck around. And I get it. It's pissed at Naomi Watts. She's clearly in danger. The horse runs all around the boat. You see that little girl that owns it. She's like, my horse. And then, um, of course, the horse sees Naomi Watts by the edge of the boat. And there is a dramatic moment where the horse fucking sprints and full on just it just chucks itself into the sea. It just throws itself off the edge of this fucking giant boat ferry and it, it dives into the sea. And I got to say, this is a, 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 a CGI moment that. I, I would almost compare it to the caliber of like what moments in Jurassic Park the dinosaurs did for that film. I'd say this horse moment does for the ring because it is some of the, the best CGI from the era. I genuinely thought they had thrown a horse off of a ship. I really thought they did it. I was like, how fucking dare they? And then you see the horse like sinking beneath the seas, like banging against the boat. Like, you know, this horse is dying. It is so hard to watch. But tell me that is not some fucking quality cgi my god oh it's amazing it is really hard to watch if you're an animal lover this is hard especially horses i mean who doesn't love horses i mean come on and to see this horse yeah throw it itself over the it charges at her and it, then it throws itself over the edge of the thing and there's like this moment where its foot kind of gets stuck on the ledge before it falls down and then as it falls it hits the side of the ship i mean it's br this is fucking brutal and once it's in the ocean, you know, it's making noise. It's whatever. They all take off running to the other end of the, the ship uh, or the ferry. And there's this moment where they're all of them are looking over at the water. And all of a sudden, the water that's being shot out from the propellers of the ship of the ferry turns fucking blood red. And that little girl is like, hey, am I? I mean, oh, it's this is brutal, brutal, brutal. A scene that like it doesn't matter how much time has gone by, it is still just as as um, cringe inducing, and I mean that in a complimentary way to it uh, as it was when I first saw it. Because yeah, like nobody wants to see a fucking horse plummet to its death, let alone be fucking blended up in propellers. But you get the whole fucking thing. I mean, aside from seeing the horse fucking get chopped up, that fucking blood churning from under the boat. I mean, that's enough. Oh my god! And again. Like the visual choices, this movie makes really strong choices with transitional moments. I've got to acknowledge that like, you know, the shot of the, the fairy from a distance where you hear that horn blaring and then it just hard cuts to the next moment. Ooh, it just does such a good job of building and building the audio just swelling. And, and then it's just like this hard cut and you're moving, you're moving on to the next point. There was another moment earlier where they had a really great um, transitional sequence of narrative where it's the scene where they're driving in the car and it was Noah and Rachel kind of like defining their plan for who's going to go where and what they're going to do. And you get a beautiful aerial shot. And this is before every fucking person and their brother owned a fucking drone. So every indie horror film now has 
aerial shots and that's great that's good they're gorgeous but i remember seeing this in theaters and being like oh wow like this doesn't look like anything else you've got that great shot of the car driving across the bridge and like it just felt ahead of its time and that's why the the film holds up so well is because it just keeps moving at a really great pace but everything it's showing you is just cinematic gold it's visually so stimulating and it's just sumptuous to watch it yeah the 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 pacing of this film is actually really, really good. It's like every scene means something and moves from one scene to the to the next with purpose. Um, after this whole horse thing, we 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 move to Noah, who's at the hospital, saying he needs to see the records of one Anna Morgan. They tell him it's impossible the, because you know, obviously for privacy reasons, they can't just let anybody see a patient's records. And he's like, Oh, come on. I was up, I was up in the records room before. And one of the, you know, nurses where I was like, Oh, nice try there. But we keep those in the basement. So it ultimately allows him to know that he needs to get into the basement of this hospital, which he does. He breaks into the basement to get to the, to the records. Rachel has made it to Anna's old farm. She recognizes the house from the video, the upstairs window, um, she recognizes a lot of the scenery from the, from the video on the property. And as she's wandering around, she does find Mr. Morgan doing his chores played by the, uh, I mean, talk about an actor that has a lot of fucking credits, the wonderful Brian Cox. Oh, he's phenomenal in this role. Yeah. She asked to speak to him and he's like, Oh, I suppose you want to know about the horses. And she's like, well, yeah, but um, there, there's more I want to ask you about. So they go into his house, and she immediately recognizes that same mirror that Anna's brushing her hair in. Oh, I love that moment where she just turns the corner, and she looks up, and she's like, <gasps> and they do like a great cut to like reveal what she's seeing, and it's the mirror in the exact same placement. You get it in the video. Oh, she's getting all these little pieces handed to her, and it's it's clearly very unsettling for her. Oh, yeah. And then he's like, why are you really here? And she shows him the videotape. She takes it out and she's like, do you know anything about this videotape? Because there's a lot of stuff on here that is is related to your to your wife. And he's like, where did you get that? And his demeanor completely changes and he becomes very like just almost withdrawn, stern and just almost sad. He's like, I got to get back to work. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff to do around here. And she's like, well, what about your daughter? Where's your daughter? And he says, I don't have a daughter. And basically he like kicks her out of the house and, and very violently. He's like, you got to get out of here. You reporters are, are always the same. You're trying to dig up the past and not letting anybody, you know, get past, but their, but their past traumas when he throws her out. I got to give it for Brian Cox. What is a very uh, overall, very uh, small yet pivotal role. Um, but his amount of screen time, I would say, is probably like under five minutes um, overall. And it's um, it, it, it's very impactful. His transition from being like a gruff, kind of stern, you know, uh, island gentleman, I guess. I don't know. Just like a, like a you know, a, a, almost like, I guess, a, what are, where are they? They're in Seattle. But he has this kind of almost like a, like a maybe like a. New England kind of sound to him in a way, but you know, he's, he's, he lives on an Island. He's, he's a rougher folk. And he, um, he goes from being this kind of, like you said, like withdrawn, gruff, rougher on the edges individual to being very stern and aggressive to eventually showing an intense mental decline. The next time that we see him, he does a great job with the progression of the character for the little bit of time. We do get him on ca- in camera. Uh, it does make for just one more captivating element to the film. 
there's a moment where Aiden gives her a picture uh, that he drew before she goes on this journey, and it's of it's of her and it's just random images, people standing in front of this house, and she notices it's the house from Aiden's picture. That's kind of important. But after this scene, we do go back to Noah, who's in the basement looking at records. He himself now gets a nosebleed. At the moment, he's looking at records that showing that Anna Morgan has had several miscarriages. So Rachel, because she recognizes that the Aiden drew the house, she calls Aiden and asks him about the house he drew. And he tells her the little girl showed me and she shows me things and she lives in a dark place. And she never sleeps. She never sleeps. <laughs> Which is kind of ironic because, you know, he, he watched the videotape because he couldn't sleep. Oh my god, yeah. And that moment of him drawing, I, I do want to acknowledge, you know, we've seen this trope so many times of children providing exposition for, like, for through, like, poorly done child art. You know, like, drawings and pictures, like, you get stick figures, like, oh, this is what the boogeyman looks like, and, you know, it's, it's, it's given the viewer the pieces of the puzzle that they need to put a lot of things together. We've seen this trope so many times. This one is... One of the earlier ones I remember seeing that really like took this idea and embraced it, the idea of like the children interpreting what's going on through their artwork. Um, and it is some of the best uh, terrifying visuals done by children out of all the horror movies. Like it looks like it's actually drawn by kids. It doesn't look like some adult sat down and tried to recreate what a child would draw. Uh, it's really well done. And once he starts fucking drawing these goddamn fucking circles, the rings, because he's seeing the ring too now, um, they have like really great audio layered over like this great sound of the chalk like as he's just with this black chalk just just drawing this fucking circle just grinding in this paper and it's um it's a really great audio cue but yeah i really like that they incorporate that trope i think they're one of the earlier films like i said to do that it's now beat over its head it's done so much but this film did really kind of set the blueprint for what is like the modern day paranormal mystery like there's always a kid there's always a child they're always drawn shit <laughs> they're always weird and unsettling and they're always connected to the evil force whatever it may be i do think that this one kind of established some of those ground rules yeah and it is important because the fact that he draws images that relate to samara and her situation is very 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 uh important because it parallels kind of her whole the whole thing that propels her into having to go into a mental hospital which we find out here real quick um so rachel uh goes to visit uh i guess i guess she's just wandering around this island until she runs into people because she ends up at dr gresnick's house who is played by the very regal jane alexander yeah dr gresnick has lived on this island forever and rachel asks her about anna through dr gresnick's dialogue we do find out that you know one winner Mr. and Mrs. Morgan went away and then they came back and they had a child, Samara, who uh, they said they adopted. And, you know, a, a few years after they adopted her, uh, Anna started going to see the doctor, uh, Dr. Gresnick, saying that she was seeing horrible things, horrible visions that she attributed to Samara. And Dr. Gresnick referred Samara to a mental institution where she assumed or she assumes that Samara is still at. And in the meantime, we have Darby over there playing with his, you know, wooden toy thing. Small but memorable character. 
Yeah, yeah. And again, I think there's a lot of parallels with the idea of just, you know, having a child who is um, distant or struggling. I mean, I think it's even hinted at that Aiden is struggling with his own uh, issues, both supernatural and otherwise. And so I think you see these parallels a lot with like the idea of mental illness and, and what is uh, developing within a child as they are starting to mature. Um, I do think like a lot of movies take this kind of whole mental illness trope and also factor it into their storylines. I do feel this film does it in a way that is never offensive or um, seems like it's really abusing it. Uh, if anything, there's like an element of sympathy that does like an undercurrent of sympathy that exists for the character of Anna, uh, of Anna and to a certain extent for Samara as well. Um, but it's it's such a consistent through story with this film. Uh, again, both with Rachel's journey with Aiden and with what's happening with Samara and her mother and what eventually her mother is driven to do. And it goes back to what I said when we started the episode about the screenplay having a lot of depth to it, surprisingly. So at the hospital now, Noah is thinking he can pretend to be Samara's father um, in order to see a video of Samara's session that she had at the mental hospital. And even the orderly is like, what's your secret? Gosh, you look great for your age. And he's like, I'll just diet. And they get to the videotape and the case is empty. And the order is like, now I'm pissed. And he looks at the checkout list for the videotape and, and Noah's like, well, who was the last person that grabbed, had the tape? And so the orderly is like, you were. Again, a little bit of that humor, that moment where he's like, he's like, oh, what's your secret? And they immediately turns around. He's like, I'm not a fucking idiot. <laughs> like, he basically like, he puts him in his place and, and tells Noah that he is on to him. But yeah, a uh, great little moment of levity then before we dive back into a sea of despair with the rest of the film. Oh, and a sea of despair it is because Rachel goes back to Mr. Morgan's house, knocks on the door. Nobody's there. She opens it. She goes inside and she just starts snooping. I mean, the nerve of her, but I guess your life is on the line, right? But she finds a box of stuff that she looks through. There's a birth certificate, which clearly shows that Mr. and Mrs. Morgan, Richard and Anna are Samara's parents, which is odd. And then all of a sudden, like this giant fucking millipede crawls out of the fucking papers. It's the same fucking millipede we saw in the video. I fucking hate millipedes. I think they're disgusting. And this is one of those spiky ones. Ugh. Fat one. And it's fat. It's a fat. It is. Uh, but she also sees a videotape. And she puts in the videotape. And it is the videotape of Samara's session with the doctor at the mental institution. So it is really the first glimpse we get of the real Samara. You know, and she's just sitting in this big white room in the middle of the room on a chair in her white dress, her hair is all over her, covering her face. Very striking image. And the doctor's asking her how she created the pictures. All these pictures. Apparently, there's all these pictures, that, that elaborate pictures too, because we've seen them. These are, these are like works of little art. And Samara says, I, I don't create them. I see them. And then they just are. So uh, apparently uh, Samara, what it boils down to is Samara apparently has the ability to just visualize images and make them come to life. And not only I think with like sense of like pictures, like physical pictures, but also like in people's minds. And that's kind of what's causing her mother to, to go insane is because Samara is projecting all of these images into her mother's mind. Um, and ultimately, then we find out she's able to project these images onto a videotape. Uh, I've got to say, like, one of the standout aspects of The Ring uh, that works for me 
Um, and I mean, the cast is great across the board, as I've stated multiple times. But honestly, it's it's the moments of Divine Chase as Samara Morgan, um, because she's so different from all of the other villains that, that horror has handed us in general. She is a tiny, moon-faced child with long, dark hair. She looks extremely innocent upon first visual. You know, she obviously is maniacal, as we come to learn. They always are. But there is just this just this innocence to her. And in her voice and her delivery of her lines, there's an element of, like a, of sadness and melancholy that she projects. Um, and you're still not sure, like, how to feel about her. Like, do you feel bad for her? Do you want to help her? Help her? Is she a villain? Um, but Div- Divine Chase is honestly great for the little bit of time we get to see her as Samara. Um, we recognize her from films like Donnie Darko. We recognize her from Spirited Away. She's the voice of Lilo from Lilo and Stitch. She has developed a career for herself outside of the ring, but she will always be synonymous with the ring the visual of her in that chair with that long dark hair striking yeah i don't think they could have gotten a better child actress honestly i mean the innocence her little chubby cheeks everything about her her voice is also innocent but there's also like this small hint of like sinister behind everything she says and her little glances she doesn't she's not in the film that long but god she leaves an impression there's also a moment on the videotape where she talks about her daddy not loving her and wanting her to go away and that he only loves the horses, which then gives us a hint of why the horses on the farm were killed because Samara was jealous of them. And as just as this is part is playing on the videotape, Mr. Morgan comes up uh, behind Rachel and fucking punches her, knocks knocks her to the ground. I mean, we're not talking a slap. We are talking a full-fledged, like, Mike Tyson, right hook to the fucking face. Oh, my God. Well, that reveal of him when she's watching the video, which is very bold to watch a video at full volume in somebody else's home when they don't know you're there. Um, but, yeah, he comes in. He, I mean, rightfully so, he knocks her out. You're in my fucking house. But we do learn that he is clearly not in the right state of mind because he is uh, he's on a mission mission. and she's like on the floor and he goes upstairs and he has like a he has like an extension cord and a fucking um what is it called like a surge protector wrapped around him and he's he's charging up the stairs and she's like what did you do to her she was your daughter you killed her didn't you and he's like my wife wasn't supposed to have a child and and he goes into the bathroom and she like follows him in, scream at him. And she steps in and she realizes the fucking bathroom floor is just a pool of water. And she sees that he has now he has TVs, VCRs all hooked up around the bathtub. The bathtub is full. This motherfucker steps into the bathtub and <laughs> proceeds to, you know, and, uh, and I mean, she's she's pleading with him. She's like, please tell me what my son is going to die. Like, what what can I do? And she's like, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's going to die. All right. And then he fucking, he turns the power surge things on and he electrocutes himself right in front of her. Oh my God. What a great fucking sequence. I forgot how well done this is. I mean, it is great. Brian Cox, like when I was saying earlier, the the switch that you get in his overall demeanor, because he's unhinged here and some of his lines, like he's mumbling to himself and you could tell that he is not in a good state of mind. Um, And he's, you know, saying things to himself like she won't whisper in my ear again. Like you're you're realizing that he's really probably quite literally been haunted by Samara this whole time. And now, I mean, he basically says he realizes that Rachel coming to the island is proof that there is no escaping Samara. She never sleeps, and his only 
only solution here is to fucking kill himself. And that is a morbid, morbid reality. And it definitely is something that Rachel realizes like, holy shit, this is even bigger than I ever expected. Like, oh, fuck, oh, you see the fear in her. Is, is wonderful. And it just so happens somehow Noah shows up. Like Noah found this house too at the same time. I don't know how that worked, but it did. And Noah shows up and she's just like, a, she's hysterical. Um, and then Rachel remembers that Aiden said that the little girl does not like the barn because the horses kept her up at night. So they rush out to the barn and they break into this barn that's on this property. And lo and behold, they see the ladder from the video and it is leaned up against this very high loft in the barn. So they climb up this loft and they, they realize that there's a bed, there's a chair, the chair that we see in the video and there's a TV and that's it. So what we come to realize is like the parents or Mr. Morgan specifically has kept Samara up in this loft like the entire time, like her mother was in the mental hospital and stuff. They just, they kept her up in this loft. And like, I'm assuming, I don't know how they got her up there, but I'm assuming they made her climb up there and then took the ladder away. So she couldn't get down. I mean, you know, even Rachel's like, how could you do this to, to your child? Like she's up here, she was up here all by herself. And Noah's like, no, not by herself because she had the TV, right? Which is a huge aspect of this film. It's really quite flawless in, in how delicately they tie together all of these tiny elements and traits of the storyline. Because, you know, it's obviously it's fantastical. Obviously, there's paranormal elements. But, I mean, you realize that once they started to realize that Samara was the problem, she was making her mother ill you know that the father that Richard placed her up in that attic because he didn't fucking want to deal with this clearly very powerful child. So he kept her up there to keep her away from Anna. Um, and so in turn, you know, she's witnessing him taking care of the horses. It's all she sees from the fucking barn and she has influence over the horses cause she's close to them. So she fucking drives them all crazy and drives them all to kill themselves, you know? And, and from that, that was the last, the last nail in the coffin for Anna. That's what drove her to kill herself, you know, in, in turn, uh, whew, man, I mean, the story here, it's complex, but it is. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Great. Like I'm surprised. I, it's, it, it's hard to wrap my mind around the fact that the same guy that wrote scream three wrote this because there is a complexity, uh, there's a level of deepness connectivity to the script that I think is masterful, honestly. Yeah. Even to the point where like they notice something on the wall behind the wallpaper and they rip it off. And it's just a huge imprint of the same tree, that very stunning, like burning tree that the sun shone through on the, uh, shelter in, uh, property so rachel recognizes it immediately as the tree she saw there out the window of the cabin so they rush back to the cabin and they get into the cabin uh and there's this whole moment where rachel is like literally having a breakdown she's like you are going to be the one that has to find you know put a stop to this she's like this is because it, keep in mind this is the seventh day like her her time is almost up so she's freaking out she's like there's nothing more we can do like you need to stop this and, and Noah's like, God, don't say that. There has to be something we can do. We can do, there has to be something. So he just starts like throwing shit around and he throws a, like a big jar of marbles down and they break onto the floor and they just all of a sudden just gravitate towards the center of the floor under the, uh, the, the TV. And Rachel notices this, that there's something there. So they move the TV. Noah runs out, gets the fire ax and they chop through the floor of this cabin to reveal the well 
fuck, the well is under the floor of this cabin. A pretty a pretty significant reveal, a very striking image. I do like the fact that the the well is a little bit hidden in this version of the film. In the original, it's just kind of out in the middle of the field, but they really have to work to get to this well. One of the little details of how they have to find it, like you said, like the marble, like all pooling on the floor because it's concave, because you could tell that obviously, uh, you know, either the moisture is causing the wood to warp or whatever it is. Like there's a there's a reason there's a purpose. Everything kind of comes together um, in a very intelligent fashion. Him running out and grabbing the axe and them just ripping those floorboards up. They don't give a fuck about this cabin anymore. I love that. I love that about their decision. And then. Uh, you know, they, they, they're like, oh shit. You know, they're, they're looking down the well. They're like, do you hear anything? Do you think anything's down there? And there's just like this moment of, of quietness, but at the same time, like little things start to happen. Like we see screws on the floor start to turn and come up off the floor. And then all of a sudden they're like bombarded with just a herd, a flock of flies that fly up from from the well. It reminds me of like the scene from the Goonies where, where all the bats fly out of that cave. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The swarm that comes out of yeah. the well is out I mean, of fucking nowhere. It's so great. And it causes all this chaos to the point. And then the screws have come off the floorboard. So like floorboards are flipping up and the, one of the floorboards flips up and the T causing the TV that's on the, you know, on the stand to come sliding down, fucking knocking <laughs> Naomi Watts backwards into this fucking well. Oh it's kind of goofy looking, but at the same time, it's so like surprising when it happens that it's like, oh shit. Oh, I don't think it's fucking goofy. I mean, the, the shot of her falling all the way down that fucking well. I mean, she would die. Let's be clear. She would die. But the point is she doesn't. Uh, but the way this whole thing comes about, the nails pulling out of the floorboards. Oh my, it's like slow. Like, you know, it's happening. They have no idea. I really think this whole sequence is actually a, a great buildup to her getting in that fucking well. <laughs> Well, the whole point of the whole, yes, the whole film is built up to this fucking well. She's in the water. We don't, the well has to be, I don't know, 50 feet down. Who knows? She's in this water. Um, there's a great shot of fr- from below the water of her face and the water floating before she wakes up. But she's in this well. She still has the flashlight. So she's able just to like look around. She notices like fingernails embedded in the side of the well that have come off, which is gross. Um, and I mean, it culminates in her like pulling up a strand of hair, a long black hair, realizing it's Samara. And as she touches the body, she immediately has a vision of what happened to Samara. And there's this beautiful shot of the well, like an aerial shot that kind of overlooking the well. And then it kind of comes down onto the ground and we see Samara looking into the well. And then the mother steps into frame. Uh, It's just a gorgeous shot cinematography wise. Um, and there's, you know, Samara is like singing to herself. Her mother walks up behind her and is like, it's so beautiful out here. Isn't, isn't it Samara? And, you know, Samara is just like singing herself. And all of a sudden the mother takes a fucking plastic bag and throws it over Samara's face and suffocates her and then pushes her body into the well. It's quite a, I mean, who? It's, it's a pretty stunning shot, actually, when she pushes the body into the well. I mean, seeing a little girl be thrown into a well. This shot is very reminiscent of the original film. This is one of those exact angles that they replicate with the little girl's legs going, flipping up over the well from a distance. You see her go all the way down. Very creepy. 
Yeah, well, and actually, in the I, they they switched it up a bit because in the original film, it's her dad that kills her, not her, not her mom. I like the switch up here. I like the whole backstory that they gave this Anna Morgan character and her ultimate. You know, she wanted this child so bad. She tried and tried and tried and tried and tried for this child, and then when she finally gets this child, it turns out to be this like evil that she has no no choice but to destroy. And she even says as she's looking down the well, she's like, "I wanted you so bad. I waited so long for you." Um, and at that same moment, like cuts back to Naomi Watts, Rachel's character, and she's lifts the body up out of the well. And we see for the first time, Samara has, that's, she's, she's been in this well the whole time. And, you know, it's kind of a very somber moment. Some somber music plays and, you know, Noah's up there screaming for her. And she finally just kind of tells Samara's corpse. She's like, you're going to be okay now. And she looks down at it and it turns back into like the rotted decaying thing that it would be. And, you know, Noah, she finally answers Noah. She's like, yeah, I'm fine. And then it cuts to, we don't get to see how, we don't get to see how Rachel got out of the well, but she's out of the well. Now all the police are there. Noah's that tells her they're going to bury her next week. Everything's going to be okay. That they, they saved the day. She made it till morning. Everything is going to be fine now. There's that moment where she's holding the the corpse, and it is a very CGI moment, and probably the most obvious CGI in the film, but still, comparatively speaking to much of the CGI of that era, uh, very well done, where the body like rots in her arms. Um, a very creepy effect, and then it just shows the, her holding the little skeleton in her arms. It's a very sad moment. They're still making you feel a lot of sympathy for Samara. You're feeling like Samara has been wronged here. Yeah, that's very clever. Yeah, this is a very sad moment. We're like, oh my God, this poor little girl. She was murdered by her mother, thrown in this well. No wonder she's trying to, you know, wreak havoc on people because, wow, what a terrible thing. But lo and behold, we cut to that night at the apartment and Rachel is tucking uh, or she's laying in bed with little little Aiden and she tells Aiden everything's going to be okay now. Samara... You know, we, we, we helped Samara. She's going to be, you know, we got her out of the dark place. He's like, was that her name? And he, she's like, yeah. And he's like, you helped her. <laughs> and it's so funny. She sits up, he sits up and he's like, why would you do that? I mean, it's, it's a revelation. It's like, what's, what's the matter, honey? And she's like, you shouldn't have done that. She never sleeps. And then instantly Rachel realizes, oh, fuck my child is still being haunted by her. Like there's, there's not a solution here. He's still uh, showing all the symptoms of being haunted by the video. Cause earlier in the, in the well, um, you know, she had that, that burn, the handprint that was charred on her arm and you saw it fade away. And she looks at his arm and she reveals that the burn is on his arm. So he's still clearly being um, haunted and, and, and basically, you know, hunted down by Samara. So she immediately of course realizes, Oh fuck. Noah, it's technically on his seventh day because it's the next morning. They wake up together and they realize they have this little conversation. They have this rev- revelation. And she's like, holy fuck, it is the seventh day. So now Noah is in danger. Yeah. And so it cuts to Noah and we get probably the mo- most iconic scene in both the remake and the original film where his TV turns on and he doesn't think anything of it at first. He shuts it off and he's, he's walking away. It turns on again and it's the well and we get that ominous humming noise and he's like, what the fuck? So he's and the phone's ringing the entire time because Rachel's trying to call him and he doesn't answer. So she gets in her car and it's like flooring it over there. And as he's watching the TV, we slowly see like Samara's image crawling out of the well. 
Um, and she comes out full walking slowly towards him through the screen. There's a few jump shots where she jumps and she's closer. And, and then, I mean, God, Roger, we get the, I mean, the iconic, iconic image of Samara actually crawling out of the fucking TV screen. I mean, it's great in the original. Tell me how you felt when you watched this in the fucking movie theater, Troy. Like, please recall this moment. I mean, I had seen the original, so I I knew what to prepare for. And I I feel like with the original film and this film, they, they, they did this very similarly. I think if you watch these two side by side, if you watch this scene and the scene from the original, they're almost in sync. So I kind of knew what to expect, but it is still very jarring. You're sitting with a bunch of people who did not know what to expect, kind of that gasp when she first crawls out of the screen. I mean, this is one of the earliest watching it through my fingers moments I can remember um, as a as a youth or as a fan of the genre. I, I did see this in theaters. I had not seen the original. Um, I did not know what to expect. And this moment, from the moment that you see her hair come over the edge of the, the TV, like the border of the television and start spilling out, you are fucking just recoiling because you know it's coming. As she's walking towards that screen, you know it's coming. But when she emerges from that television, holy Fuck! I can't think of a of a more uh, striking, uh, basically villain reveal than this moment. Oh, it's frightening! And then you know he's he's fallen backwards through furniture, through bookcases, and she's out now, full force. And you know she's standing there, and there are a few there's moments where she jumps and she's closer to him, and he's on the floor. And that final one where she finally looks up, and you can see her rotted face, her rotted eyeball, and then he screams, and we just get a glimpse a small glimpse of his face turning into that distorted thing before it cuts to Rachel getting there and banging on the apartment door and then having to run up the steps and going into his apartment and and just seeing it in disarray. And we see him sitting in its chair in front of the TV and she slowly makes her way towards him and turns him around and just lets out that gut wrenching scream that she's does so well in this film. Uh, It's, it's, it's quite, emotional but then there's also the moment where she leaves the apartment and she sees that his assistant that harsh banged gal is coming home and you know she doesn't say anything and instead she she goes home and she finds Aiden sitting on the couch and she immediately tells him to go to his room and she goes into the living room and gets the tape out and it has has a breakdown like any of us would do she's what the fuck what what do you want for me and she breaks the tape and she is just in a emotional fit when she's thinking to herself, she's like, what did I do that he didn't? What did I do? And in that moment that you mentioned that was important when she throws the tape earlier and it goes under the sofa comes into play because she looks you know, around and she, her eyes catch something under the sofa and she sees that it is the copy of the tape that she made and it dawns on her, oh shit, I made a copy. That's what I did. It wasn't helping Samara out of the well. It was making a copy so that this can continue. And you get all these flashbacks of different things that people have said that, that hint at the idea that that is how you save yourself. Yes, you have to make a copy and you have to show it to someone else to continue this whole cycle. What a great fucking revelation for it all to come down to the idea of spreading this, basically this virus. Um, 
And, and and again, she plays it so well. All of her moments of just realization and shock and terror and these final moments that scream, like you mentioned, she's got several great screams over the, the whole course of the film. But that last scream that she gives when she sees Noah, and it doesn't show him in that moment. Um, it just shows her angle, her reaction. But you don't need to see it because her response is just so um, just just blood curdling and just horrific. I love that she leaves it for that broad to find him. I love that's so shitty, but I mean, I get it. I mean, she's covering her ass. I get it, but she's, I mean, but she's becoming a, I don't want to say she's becoming a shitty character, but she's doing things that aren't so ethical in order to to save herself and her child. Because what the, the final, the final moment of the film is her taking Aiden to the video production room and forcefully making him make a copy of the tape. And as he's watching and she pushes his fingers so that he makes a copy, he says to her, this isn't going to end, is it? And she's like, don't worry, baby, you're going to be okay. And then he asks her, well, what about the person we show it to? What's going to happen to them? And she doesn't answer him. And that's how the film ends. I mean, it's quite a ominous, sinister way to end a film and you you have to i mean it's one of those things like i get it this bitch has to save her life and she has to save the life of her child but in doing so they are blatantly going to murder somebody else i mean it's 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 a dilemma um it's something that the sequel did not explore i the sequel is not good so it doesn't but i i i mean gosh this is such a thought-provoking film and to leave you with such a like i said just such a a dilemma like you want to know okay what are they, are they going to show it to somebody else who are they going to show it to are they going to tell that person that they need to make a copy how long is this going to i mean all these endless questions um but this film ultimately is expertly crafted i mean edge of your seat the whole way through pacing uh, it's a t- almost a two-hour film and it does not feel that way at all i mean stunning to look at i can't i cannot praise this film enough to be honest with you roger i i'm glad you picked it it's an iconic piece of, of horror film history. I think there's enough scenes in this film that are embedded in our minds as horror fans. It is a truly a, a groundbreaking piece of horror cinema and what it did for the incorporation of the influence of, of Asian cinema uh, in, in our own um, and what we were producing at the time, it really did cause a massive trend because of the response, you know, this, this film, received an amazing response from from viewers horror fans and and critics alike um and it has become kind of just uh one of the pinnacle pieces of of horror cinema from that time period understandably so because there's a classiness and an elegance to this film that so few horror films possess in general and one of the highest grossing horror films of all time and one of the i think it's if the, one of the highest grossing remakes of all horror remakes of all time as well. I mean, this film raked it in at the box office. I think it made like $245 million off of a $40 million budget. So it definitely was not a flop. Now I, I like I said, I do wish the sequel would have lived up to this, but that's a whole different conversation. I'm looking at this film as a standalone piece and a, a companion piece to the original because the original while the stories are similar the original has a whole different vibe and a whole different like background to the samara or to the samara character and what her abilities are and i feel like these are two really good companion pieces but god i mean i, I this film yeah i mean it's a stunning piece of 
filmmaking even today it holds up like you said very nothing about this film seems dated with the exception of maybe a few technology things but i mean this film would give horror films coming out today a run for its money in terms of production value cinematography everything i mean i can't heap enough praises on this film it's it's to me it's 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 a wonderful wonderful film Oh my God. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And I, I wanted to cover it just honestly, because I love it so much. And it's, it's a film I, I vividly remember viewing in theaters. Um, I've, I've carried it with me. I agree that I think that the sequel is just, is kind of insulting in a way because God, this left it open-ended for such a, a great story to, to follow through and continue with. And they really just didn't take advantage of it at all. Um, but on its own, the performances, the visuals, the the direction, the, the like you said, the screenplay. I mean, I, it, it damn well is a nearly perfect film in my opinion, and it still delivers. Like after have seen having seen it so many times over what is over twenty years now, this film still delivers in ways so many films that come out today just cannot. Um, so I, I I love the hell out of this movie. I'm so happy you let me finally um, you know dive into the ring because I, I hold it close to my heart. Well, again, I knew we had to ring in the new year big, and I think this is was was just a film for it. So, guys, let us know your thoughts on The Ring. Um, what are your thoughts on it as a remake? Have you seen the original Ringu? How would you compare the two? How would you rank the two? I'm curious to know. Um, but yeah, that's that's The Ring. I mean, whoo! But I guess then we not we got to reveal what we're covering next week, and I think it's just as an iconic film, Roger. We're going to put our leotards on, get our headbands on, get get into our tanning beds because we are, Roger, next week, new year, new me, new you, we're going to start having some killer workouts. I am so thrilled to know that you've selected this film. Um, what What a fucking crock of shit this movie is but in the best possible way i can't wait to watch that broad get burned in that fucking tanning bed you know how much i love and love seeing her get burned alive um and yeah it just it gives me so many so many of the things i crave spandex boozles nude women um homely men (laughs) horribly executed character development (laughs) giant safety pins yeah i cannot wait to talk about this so yeah next week we're covering killer workout uh, so get your spandex on and get ready to join us because I'm sure it's going to be one hell, one hell of a workout to get through. Oh my God. Those fannies are going to be aching because we're going to be doing squats while we're watching it. Troy and I are going to leave you, lead you in a personal workout regiment through the whole episode. So get ready to work out this killer workout. It's going to be great. <laughs> that's mostly a lie. We're not going to be working out. I'm a fat ass. There's no way that's happening. <laughs> remember five star rating on apple podcast check out the patreon and next week tune in for killer workout until then good night we're back we're back